Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up this week. And this week, Arlene Bergen is teaching, and she's continuing in our current Revelation series, Letters from God, Jesus' Words to His Church. And if you're a part of our Southview family, we do invite you to join us in our fall building offering. And this building that we are here each week has been a great tool that enables us to reach out to others with the love of Christ and and doing so in very practical ways to the community like free tutoring, community hub ministries, or life seminars. Now, the building is just a wineskin, but it is a very helpful and highly used wineskin, and your gift goes towards our mortgage and ongoing costs, and you can give either on-site here at the building, online through the website, or you can text SOUTHVIEW to 73256. The best way to know about what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, then we'd love to hear from you. You can find the online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form, so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, May your hearts be open and expectant, because God is here, and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. So glad that you could join together with us today, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. Welcome here. Through Pastor Clyde's teaching last weekend, we saw John, the author of Revelation, alone on his island of discouragement. He had lived to serve Christ, but now his whole life work seemed to hang in the balance as John endured exile on Patmos, knowing that in all likelihood, island exile was going to be the last chapter of his story. And John had to have wondered if it would be worth it. Was it worth it to stay true to Christ, to witness to the truth of Christ without compromise if this is where it got him? Would it have been better to give a little bit here, a little bit there, to pacify the powers that be, if only for no other reason that it would have kept him off Patmos, and it would have enabled him to continue his witness? And I mean, a compromised witness, it's got to be better than no witness at all, right? Was it worth it to hold tight to his Savior if it meant that he was going to lose everything else? These are the thoughts that might have plagued him as he awoke on that Lord's day, as he broke the bread and drank the cup, remembering alone, proclaiming only to himself the hope that the gospel of Christ would feed and sustain him until Christ returned. But then this solitary sufferer who was weary, but he was enduring, 
was overcome with this voice like a trumpet. The risen and the reigning Christ spoke words of encouragement to his beloved. And John had never been alone, but now he had an audible and a visible manifestation of the one that he had testified to. And with that first sight of his ascended Savior, John knew it was worth it. It was worth a thousand Patmoses for just one glimpse of Christ in glory. That's all it took for the trials of his life to be seen in their proper perspective. And so after speaking to John on his solitary island of discouragement, the ascended Christ had words for his churches. He turned to speak to believers who, though they were part of a church, they lived in communities. They worked in communities that were full of distractions and temptations and seductions. And the struggles that they faced, they were going to be different than John's. But the question that remained for them was the same. Would it be worth it? Would it be worth it to resist the current of culture, to give up things that looked good, felt good, sounded good for a promise that was still just that. It was just a promise. It was hope, but it was not experience. And so today we're going to look at the words that Christ spoke through John to his church in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, which we can read in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. But first we're going to open in a word of prayer. Father, we approach your throne of grace from which you speak words of encouragement to solitary saints and to your gathered body of believers. You are the God of power who holds the stars in his hand and you are the God of presence who is near walking among your people. Your eyes of fire, they see us as we truly are and still you call us to yourself. And so Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear and hearts that respond to your grace and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we had a picture of the Christian life lived out as a solitary walk. We all have our islands where we live out our personal relationship with God through private prayer, private worship, Bible reading. That's just between us and God. This week we're going to see a picture of the Christian life that's lived out in community. Christ builds his church, his body, which, though one, is made up of many through the gathering of believers in corporate prayer and Bible reading and worship. And so solitary islands, they present one set of strengths and and weaknesses, difficulties, but bustling communities, they present another. Solitary islands, they can lead to isolation and to discouragement, but bustling communities can be these places of distraction and temptation and seduction. And Christ Jesus, he had encouraged John to endure by showing John who he is and what he has been doing ever since he ascended into heaven, and that is he is reigning in power and in glory. And so that vision of the exalted and ascended Christ, that's what assured John that no matter what he suffered, it was going to be worth it because those who endure, they're going to enjoy eternal life with Christ. And so now Jesus is going to speak to his church. And the church that he's speaking to in Revelation, it's increasingly a second generation church. It was no longer under the leadership of those men who had lived and walked personally with Christ Jesus. Those first disciples, first apostles and eyewitnesses, they had all died or been killed for their witness to Christ. And so new leaders who had been trained up under them, they were leading the church. 
But as the church became more established in its teachings and in its practices, as it grew in size and in influence, opposition against it grew as well. Government and political leaders were threatened by their faithfulness to and worship of only one God. And this increasingly made life difficult and oppressive for the Christian community. So as a result, that fresh joy that comes from new life in Christ, it began to wear thin. And believers were becoming increasingly weary and discouraged. And this tempted them to give in to cultural and political pressures just to make life more bearable or maybe even to make it more enjoyable. And so from his throne room in heaven, Christ Jesus invited his busy, his worn out, his distracted and disheartened followers to come to him and to hear his words of encouragement and warning. And yes, believers then, just like believers today, we need to hear both the encouragement and the warning to help us stay the course. And we've already seen that the book of Revelation is one letter that was passed to seven churches and through them symbolically, because seven is the number of completion, to all churches in all times. And so this means that Jesus, he was speaking specifically and personally to those seven churches in Revelation. And so each of them would have heard his personal words to them, But he's also speaking to the church as a whole as well. And all the other six churches got to hear what Jesus said to each of the churches. And so Nancy Guthrie, she's compared this to a teacher standing in front of a classroom and reading out individual student report cards for the entire class to hear. I don't know how that makes you feel or how you would have felt if that had been you having your report card read out loud in front of the class. For me, there's some parts I wouldn't have minded. I might have even enjoyed because I'm like, yeah, that would make me look good if the teacher would read that part out. But then there's other parts I'm like, no, I think it's okay if that stays just between the teacher and I. The very persistent observation that Arlene talks too much in class probably would not have come as a surprise to any of my classmates because they heard me. But it's not something that I particularly would have enjoyed having pointed out publicly by the teacher. There are some things we do not mind having exposed for other people to hear. But then there's some things that we would rather keep hidden. And Christ, he knows all. He sees all. He exposes. He brings those things that we would like to keep hidden into the light. And it's to encourage his people towards repentance, towards healing, towards life. And the content of Christ's message to each of his churches begins with the words, I know. Jesus wants his people to be clear. He sees their true condition, whether it's good or bad. He is going to speak the true words that they need to hear if they are to endure. And so the first church that Christ speaks to is the church in Ephesus. And we're going to pick up reading it in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 2. And remember, friends, that this is the word of God. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So Christ Jesus in verse one, he came to them in power as the one holding the stars 
And he came to them in presence. He was the one that was walking among them, among the lampstands. And he knows what they did well. They had worked hard. They had endured faithfully. They had tested diligently. This was a hardworking, right-thinking group of believers. The teaching they received, they tested it against the scriptures that they had already received. In fact, Paul had met with elders and leaders from the church in Ephesus some 30 years earlier. And he had warned them that they needed to stay alert because the teaching that they received, they had to test it because deception was going to try to work its way into the church. And the people in Ephesus, they had taken Paul's warning to heart. They had been a careful and a discerning bunch. In fact, Christ even commended them because they hated what he hated. And if Jesus hates something, how can his followers love it? So some in the church in Ephesus, the church as a whole, it had endured well on one level. But it's like when the teacher says, your math mark is excellent. Well done. But now we need to talk about social studies. And you're like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. And so after commending them for what they had done well, Jesus rebuked them because they hadn't protected their hearts. They had hung on to the truth, but then they had let go of love. So love for what? Each other? Probably. Love for Christ? Definitely. They had started with a singular focus and a singular passion for Christ, but they lived in a city where there was so much that competed for his place. There was almost endless possibilities for entertainment and competition and luxury and escape. There was a fierce battle that was being waged for their hearts. And I wish I could say, man, I have no idea what that's about. I don't know what was happening in Ephesus. But that wouldn't be true. Like the church in Ephesus, we live in a culture that is saturated with busyness and distractions. And they don't just exist. They're celebrated. And if those are left unchecked, they're going to pull us away from what's most important. If they're left unchecked, they're going to fill up our time and our mind and our hearts to the point where we don't have room anymore to grow love for Christ. And so Jesus warned them that if they didn't remember the love that they had at first, where they had started, if they didn't repent, change course, and return to their first love, he was going to remove their lampstand, their witness, their light. So Ephesus faced a very serious problem. But if people from Pergamum, a city that was a frequent rival to Ephesus, if they thought it was safe to whisper and point at Ephesus right about now, they would have quieted down quite quickly when their turn came. Because speaking to believers in Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And Pergamum, it was a city full of temples and altars that were dedicated to idol worship. Believers in that city, they lived both literally and figuratively under the dark shadow of false worship and competing loyalty to Christ. And Jesus saw that. He knew that. He commended his people for being surrounded by all of it, but still holding fast to faith in him. But Jesus has something against them. He says, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent. So while believers in Ephesus had a heart problem, believers in Pergamum had a mind issue. 
because they were surrounded by fierce opposition and they hadn't diligently protected their minds, deception had worked its way into the church. And some in the church held to this false teaching that promoted compromise in areas that the scriptures spoke clearly against. And these people, they told their fellow brothers and sisters, you can have it both ways. You can hold on to Christ while simultaneously enjoying the things that are clearly restricted, that have been said we are not to do this by early church leaders decades earlier. And Balaam, he was this duplicitous Old Testament prophet who enticed God's covenant people towards idolatry and sexual immorality. And the Nicolaitans, they did the same thing. They encouraged secular living. They said that Christians could look like the world in their work and in their social lives, and then they could be faithful to and look like Christ in their religious lives. And we can be a little tempted that way for us today as well. There's voices that tell us, well, you can't win souls if you look so markedly different from the people around us. We've, We've got to change our thinking a little bit. We might have to go against things scripture clearly speaks to just a little bit, just the bare minimum, but to build relationships, to win hearts for Christ. And Jesus, he knows our motivation. He knows our intent. He knows our heart. So we don't have to worry so much about what we think, right? Because if Jesus has a heart, I mean, does he need our thoughts and our minds too? And he does. Jesus warns them that he's going to come against them with the sword from his mouth, the sword of truth. So what they think, it mattered. It had to line up with the truth. And I would be willing to bet that if this was the classroom setting that we've been imagining, the group from Thyatira at this point would have been uncomfortably silent thinking, oh boy, I can guess what Jesus is going to say to us. And they might have shifted a little nervously as the envelope opened and their report card was removed because Jesus saw them. He knew them and he said, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. There it was, the moment that they dreaded. Jesus saw And he named the Jezebel that was in their midst. Now, Jezebel, she was an Old Testament queen. She was a Sidonian princess who married King Ahab, the wickedest king in Israel's history. And she started by bringing her prophets of Baal to Israel so that they could coexist with Israel's prophets for Yahweh. But because it is impossible to maintain competing loyalties for a long time, as time passed, she tried to have all of Yahweh's prophets killed. And so the person that's referred to as Jezebel in the church in Thyatira probably wasn't somebody named Jezebel. Probably she's referred to in this way to point to what she promoted. And this Jezebel, she's not just sitting there taking up pew space. They had given her space to teach her lies. And Jesus points out what believers in Thyatira might have already guessed. Their problem, it was worse than wrong thinking by some church members. Their problem was allowing wrong teaching inside the church. And if the ideas that were shared in Pergamum, if they were subtle, the ones that were taught in Thyatira, they were overt. 
they allowed someone to flat out teach and encourage people inside the church that it was safe to do what scripture clearly said they must not do. And Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. I opened up a space for grace. But this teacher refused to take what he offered. She kept teaching outright blatant lies. And so if these aren't even subtle lies, why would anybody in the church believe her? And they believed her because her words about compromise, they sounded good. They were a lifeline because Thyatira was a city that was consumed with trade guilds. Whatever business you were involved in, there was a trade guild for that. And if you wanted to conduct business, you had to be part of a trade guild. And so if you were part of this guild, you had to go to feasts where you sacrificed either to local gods or to the emperor as God. And then after you had sacrificed to a false god, then you would feast. You would eat and drink, and there would be a party. And these feasts, they were very critical networking business events, but they were also parties of rampant idolatry and sexual immorality. If we know about Jesus and if we love him, does it really matter how we live? I mean, if Jesus have, has our hearts, if he has our feelings, if he has our minds, what we think, and we know these gods, they're not real gods. We're just going along with the flow so that we can have some way of providing for our families. I mean, does he really need our hands? Does he really need our deeds or actions too? And so trying to help believers navigate the difficulties of life in this culture, Jesus says, yes, yes, hold fast, hold on to me until I return because it will be worth it. And now it's time for believers in Sardis to hear Christ's words to them. And it's quite possible that they sat up in anticipation thinking, I think we're going to be the class valedictorians when all is said and done because this was the church in the area. They had a good reputation. And it's possible that the other churches looked at the church in wealthy Sardis, the only church that didn't face any outside opposition, and wished that they had what Sardis did. But when Christ speaks, he gets straight to the point, And he says, you have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And the other churches might have gasped and said, Sardis? Dead? But they look so good. They're wealthy, they're big. Other churches look at their programs and they want to emulate them and they're dead. So you're saying their works, their impressive works are falling short in heart or mind or strength. Actually, how has this happened? But life in Sardis was really easy. And so believers there, they had grown complacent. They were apathetic. And so like Sinclair Ferguson says, they laid their heads on the soft pillow of a good reputation and they went to sleep. And Jesus urgently warned them. He said, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. But the problem is dead people can't wake up. They're dead. There's nothing that can be done when someone is dead. How, how can that which is dead live again? And I hope that it's at this point they remembered the scriptures that they had heard, that they had received through the church in Ephesus. And I can picture them at this point rejoicing over the best words ever. But God, but God, because he is rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Christ Jesus came to his church in Sardis with the very spirit of God that breathed life into mankind with the intimacy of a kiss. What is dead can live. And believers in Sardis, they were flatlining, but they're told to wake up by breathing in the fullness of life in Christ. Our risen and ascended Christ, he spoke words of warning and encouragement to his church. And for many, the message was dire. These established churches, they lived on the edge of disaster. They were in danger in heart, in mind, in action, and life itself. And they were called to endure, but to endure... It seemed like they would have to give Jesus everything, their hearts, their minds, their hands, their very lives. And that's a hard message. And that can even be a discouraging message if the one who spoke it was only a teacher who was handing out report cards or only a friend who was shouting encouragement from the sidelines or just a brother part of the same messy family saying, plod on, the end must be somewhere in sight. Jesus Christ, the one who spoke to his churches then, is the same one who speaks to us today. He is still our teacher. He is still our friend. He is still our brother. But to the eternal glory of God, he is also our savior. And as the savior, he comes to churches that for all intents and purposes are dead with the spirit of God the breath of life breathing new life into his people as he encourages them to endure. The Savior, he gives us everything and he asks everything of us in return. Will it be worth it? Yes. Look at Christ's promises to the churches then and remember these are promises to all churches in all times. He says the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. God will write your name in the book of life, the family register. And one day, he is going to read it aloud before God and angels. It will be worth it. As the Savior, he comes to churches where misplaced love and mistaken thinking manifest in wrong living and he encourages them to endure. Will it be worth it? Yes, because while we might have little power or influence in this life, while it might seem like we're on the bottom rung of a rising totem pole, Christ promises the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The Savior, he has all the power, and one day he's going to share it with his people who will reign with him. It will be worth it. And our Savior, he comes to churches whose hearts have grown cold with the promise of eternal life in him. He says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All who overcome, who endure, they will be able to eat from the tree of life in the garden of God where he walks with, where he talks with his people. Will it be worth it to give your heart, your mind, your strength, your very life to the Savior? Yes. And John, when he was alone on his island of exile, he was assured that it would be worth it to hold tight to his Savior, even if it meant he would lose everything else. And today we are joined together in community, and we're surrounded by distractions and temptations and seductions. 
And we face struggles in our lives that make us wonder if it'll be worth it to endure, to resist the current of culture, to give up things we want, things that promise that they'll be worth it. And we wonder, is it going to be worth it to endure the pain and the tears and the struggles that come from enduring, from holding on to Christ and all that he has promised is coming? And his promises, they give us hope, but we don't experience the fullness of them yet. So will it be worth it to give Christ our hearts, our minds, our actions, and our lives? And it will be worth it because our Savior He can bring what's dead to life. He's the God of all power who could demand our minds and our actions and our lives, but not want our hearts. But he asks for them. He's the God who calls us to himself in love. He's the God who invites us into his garden of presence and delight and life. And so endure, my friends, because it will be worth it. And so what John did alone on Patmos on the Lord's Day, we will do together. We are going to come to this table as broken people, remembering together, proclaiming to each other the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God who was broken for us, that it will feed us and it will sustain us until he returns. And on that day, what is broken and will be healed and it will be mended for all eternity and it will have been worth it. So can I invite you, if this Jesus, the Savior who died and rose and ascended, who reigns and who will return, if he is your Savior and your Lord, you are invited to join with us as we come to the table to remember and to receive from him. And so, Father, may this food today be spiritual food for us. May it feed us and sustain us to endure with great hope and great joy until you return. So if you take your bread, I invite you to receive from Christ. Remember, this is the body of Christ that has been broken for you. And take the cup. And as you drink, remember, this is the blood of Christ that has been poured out for you. Father, we pray with the psalmist, search us and know us. Try us, and if there is any grievous way in us, remove it, we pray, and lead us in the way everlasting. Help us as we endure in and through and to your eternal glory. Amen. So our gathering has not ended. If you would like to join us in community, I invite you to head out to the Cardo after the service. If you're new, visit the Newcomer Center, which, like Nicole said, you'll find to the right as you exit, and have a conversation with someone new or someone familiar.
But before we go, if I could invite you to stand. And the benediction from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.